0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I am John Hockenberry. Please welcome this unbelievable panel. Bo Willemond, David Simon, Nate Silver, and Ann Thompson. Sit anywhere, folks. I know you're independent enough to do. Not what I ask, but what you want to do, and that's part of what we're here to talk about today. I am John Hockenberry. I'm a journalist, and as a journalist slash dinosaur, I am here at Ground Zero (laughs) at the moment of the arrival of the asteroid, the flaming asteroid. Actually, there are two (coughs) flaming asteroids that will collide, are colliding, and will hit the Earth, and the dinosaurs, folks, will die. They will die. We are talking about two competing asteroids that are disrupting the media that you are all here at the Tribeca Film Festival enjoying and exploring and thinking about and also participating in the disruption of. One of those flaming asteroids is the disruption of viewing patterns by the distribution models upheavals that are taking place, one of which, one of those upheavals is represented in uh, the persona of Bo Willimon and of course House of Cards, which we saw in that video clip there. The other flaming asteroid is the extent to which media has not become images flickering on a screen, but has become data streams of ones and zeros, upon which narratives can be layered and added to the fusion of the narrative of what it is you folks do when you watch, and the narrative of what is the story on the screen, are inseparable and indistinguishable to the devices that you use to watch your movies. They have... No interest in what is an episode, what is a pause, what is a preference, what is a time of day, and all that data is available to people and programmers and producers. And you know what happens when producers get their hands on numbers? <coughs> it's like crack to them, folks. <laughs> Two apparently unrelated things I want to toss out here. Charles Dickens. How many of you read Charles Dickens? A few more hands. I'm in public radio, for Christ's sake. (laughs) All right, keep those hands up. Keep those hands up. How many of you read Charles Dickens in book form? There's a name for you people. Okay, you think of yourselves as literate and informed, but no, there's a name for you people. You people are called, what is it? You are binge readers. Do you understand why you are binge readers? Bill Willimon knows. David Simon, I'm sure, knows. Ann Thompson knows. That's because Dickens was written in serialized form. The people who originally read Dickens read him in individual episodes published in magazines at the time. And as Dickens became more and more famous, Dickens slash House of Cards, Dickens began to understand that people could actually appreciate his art Form in huge chunks that became, of course, book forms and the novels we understand. And in fact, ultimately, by the end of Dickens' career, he was layering stories that went from book to book, characters and names and situations that would reappear in book after book. The Harry Potter series has this phenomenon as well. Now, of course, House of Cards. How many of you watch individual episodes of House of Cards? How many of you watch the whole damn thing? Yeah, there we go. Of course, you are binge viewers, but there's nothing new about binge viewers. In between chapters, when you were reading Dickens, did you ask yourself, should I read two more chapters? Should I read three more chapters tonight? Any of you do that? Raise your hands, right? And maybe you just said, no, I'll go to sleep and do it tomorrow. When you have finished an episode or three of House of Cards, do you say to the person you're watching with, or if you're sitting there by yourself with a huge bag of Cheetos, (laughs) do you just say to yourself, Am I good for two more episodes, three more episodes? Hands up, anyone? Yeah? Okay. So this kind of interactive phenomenon of the episode versus the huge chunk is here, uh, is partly what we're here to discuss. The other two issues I want to uh, put out here, which uh, represent the second flaming asteroid I talked about earlier, Cinema Paradiso. Who saw that movie? Oh, nice. Nice. Nice, we are at the Tribeca Film Festival. (laughs) Cinema Paradiso, and of course, Netflix. How many of you are Netflix subscribers? Those two are related in the sense that one is the beginning narrative of Cinema Paradiso began as movies that were images flickering on a screen. And when the priest wanted to intervene in the movie and cut out all of the kissing scenes, there in the beginning, the projector had to stop. He rang a bell, and the individual frames were cut out of the movie, and put in a bin, and then, of course, the priest was happy, and the people in the town would see an edited version of the movie that was cleaned up for the Catholic Church. The data was only available in one linear form in those old movies. Nowadays, you can download the Cinema Paradiso as a data stream, and Netflix has access not only to the kissing scenes, how many people watch the kissing scenes more than once, or the screwing scenes more than once, or skip over the boring scenes, or pause the movie in the middle, all of these layered elements of viewer participation and viewer activity and viewer behavior is part of the narrative of that individual movie. And it is accessible by producers, accessible by distributors like Netflix, and can be fed back into the story development uh, process. And that's what we're here to talk about. Please welcome Bo Willinan, formerly of the data set of uh, voters in uh, the political sphere uh, who traded that data set in for the development of uh, fictional television, House of Cards. Bo, thank you so much. David Simon and I once shared a data set called uh, The Consumers of Journalism when he was a reporter for the Baltimore Sun. He traded that in for fictional television. Of course, the man behind The Wire and Treme. <laughs> For Nate Silver, uh, the data is the story, and uh, he traded in uh, sports, data, commentary, and statistics for uh, political um, data collection and has made himself the Darth Vader of journalism these days, Nate Silver, with his 5:38 website. And Ann Thompson, of course, the critic whose opinions and judgments about movie and art are always weighed against the data set of box office, of ratings, those kinds of things, all of this disrupted by the issues that I've raised here. And welcome. <laughs> to each of you, let's begin. What do you do these days um, that is a product of your instinct as an artist and a writer? And what do you do these days, uh, judgment that you make, uh, uh, an evaluation that you make that is the result of data that interests you that was maybe not available to you 10, 20 years ago, data sets of viewer behavior, anything. Um, what do you do that's instinct, Bo? and what do you do that is a response to, huh, the audience is interested in that? I think I'll uh, go there. It,
1: it's, uh, it's still all instinct for me because I don't have access to that data. I mean, I have no idea how many people have watched House of Cards, I don't know what times of day they've watched it. I don't know where, if they stopped to watch the screwing scenes or not. Um, Netflix uh, closely guards that data for a whole host of reasons, and I'm glad that they do. I I wouldn't want access to that data. As long as uh, they're happy, I'm happy, because it means I get to keep making the show. Uh, But uh, I think that uh, that that sort of data is... uh, Leads to pandering, which is the yeah. antithesis of creativity. But you still
2: have access. <laughs>
0: you still I, have I, thought access. I,
1: I thought I was brought here to uh, to fight with him. I, w- I thought we were supposed to have an argument. But there's you still would, you would there's still numbers sure.
0: that you can see that interest you. You don't like block what? it all out.
1: No, I mean I, I literally have no idea how many people have watched it. You know, I mean no, I, I. I'm
0: not interested in whether you know about the ratings or not. It's it's what is it about viewers and media consumers that can be told in the story of numbers that intrigues you at all? I don't mean what you choose to write stories about. Is there anything out there that interests you?
1: Uh, a lot of things interest me.
0: Because um, <laughs> I, I, numbers I interested you with the Howard Dean campaign. Yeah, right? sure.
1: No, I, I'm, I'm not trying to be difficult here. I'm actually just trying to think of I a, of a good difficult. answer to your question that will please all these people. Uh, no, I, I um, look. Uh, You know, one of the things that does interest me, uh, and that you know, and you have to take this with a grain of salt, uh, but but you have, and I'm sure Anna has thoughts about this. Like you have on Netflix, um, you know, viewer sort of scores. Like they do stars, and they can write little reviews and stuff like that. Um, Now, it's a particular subset of people who take the time to do that, who are invested in doing that. Um, They don't represent everyone who watches the show, Um, but I find it interesting sometimes uh, when a season comes out to go and, and look at the one and two star. Ratings, And it's not just a form of sort of, you know, uh, self-punishment, really, but, but I'm looking for sort of, you know, I guess anecdotally, in a way, like a sort of very imprecise sampling of what are the things that people who don't like the show um, consistently bring up. You know, and and in a way, I find it liberating because you realize that there are certain things, like if you kill a dog in your first 30 seconds, people say, I'm not going to watch this show. I don't like dogs being killed. You go, well, okay, great. I did not know that. That that person is not meant to watch this show. Um, I don't, that doesn't mean I'm going to avoid killing dogs in the future. You just, it it becomes a little, (laughs) or birds, we killed a bird too. Um, It just means that, uh, you know, you, you sort of, realize um, what you can let go of in a way and then sometimes there are consistent sort of you know this story point consistently among the people who took the time to write about it was unclear or I didn't communicate that properly uh, uh, I didn't do my dro- job right because that that wasn't received in the way that it was intended. Um, You know, again, this is very imprecise, and I don't stay up, you know, into the wee hours of the night obsessing over these things, but But I think that that sort of immediate response and feedback, which you didn't have 10 years ago, uh, is, is, you know, a direct dialogue between people who are making the show and people who are watching it, You know, It it can be an asset, it can be a liability, uh, and so it's a balance, but I I find it intriguing.
0: I think those feedbacks are really part of the story here, those interesting new feedbacks. Whether we're precise or not in statistical terms, are they relevant, are they interesting, and I'm I'm glad that you said that. Nate Silver, what do you do that is a response to data, and what do you do that's a response to pure instinct on the part of uh, yourself as an observer of the political sphere?
3: So, you know, I... I sometimes think the term instinct is overused. You know, I guess I used my instinct when I got off on the subway at 23rd Street and had to figure out what exit's going to get me there the fastest, right? But you know, instinct really means accumulated experience, I think. Um, Depending on which develop. psychologist you talk to. Sure, yeah. Um, you know, you know, I think uh, when I'm writing my stories, I have an instinct about uh, what's real and what's not in the data. Um, we can say, oh, that looks like it's an outlier in the sense that that data is wrong and that doesn't. That takes a lot of experience, though, um, to gain that instinct. Um, I mean, in terms of how we program the site, we look at data, but we look at data for big picture types of stuff. It's very hard now to, um, I mean, it's, you know, you'll see a story that you thought was something you just uh, put out there at last minute gets, you know, 150,000 page views all of a sudden, right? Whereas one you work really hard on, doesn't, but you do see some patterns. You know, one thing we've noticed, for example, is that um, stories that are either very timely, so we're writing off the news, or not timely at all, maybe you have more time to step back and do the big picture. You know, those work better than those that are halfway in between. So that's one of the problems with optimization. Is sometimes you say, well, you know, why don't we have something which is pegged to the news but also has resonance? Well, those stories actually do do worse. So if you're trying to optimize for that, then you're getting yourself into trouble. So it's. It's tricky, I think it helps to understand how statistics can both lead you and mislead you when you're analyzing the performance of, of your site on the web. Um, with that said, you know, I think it's naive to say oh, we don't care at all about, about what the audience thinks. I mean, you know, we're all in some type of commercial business. We all have a lot of pride in what we do. We think there's creativity and ethical considerations involved, but you know, the goal of journalism is still to, to inform an audience. And
0: uh, your judgments is what people look for when they read your reviews, but they're often measured against data. What is instinct in your work, and what is a response to uh, data that interests you on any level?
4: A lot of it has to do with having taste and um, assuming that the people who are reading the blog are looking to me not only for a little bit of authority, but a spin and, an, and a kind of um, explanation of what it means beyond just the news. And so I have to weigh, like I know if I write about, uh, there's a huge Twilight following, right? Traffic is very important. We need to get good traffic. But if I overdo it and I pander and I put something up just because the Twilight crowd is gonna like it, I'll get punished. The readers will be pissed off. I have to be aware instinctively of not just the numbers, but. Who are they? What what do they like and what do they look for? Uh, and, and not pander uh, too much. And uh, also what you're saying is absolutely true. Um, going against zigging when everyone else is zagging absolutely works. And making sure that you find time to give people a deep dive with a lot of context is important. Uh, you can't just chase the traffic with the fast-breaking stuff because that's what everybody else is doing.
0: Is it pandering only when you're punished or is it pandering... The whole time you decide to go with to
4: No, I mean, an example would be that uh, there was a Cannes uh, announcement. All the movies uh, were laid out. I reported all of that, and then I did a separate story. Two Rob Pattinson stories in Cannes spiked like a genius, but it was, it was legitimate. It was, it was just uh, okay. I got was away with it.
0: <laughs> Mr. Simon, uh, the data set that responded to your stories uh, in the Baltimore Sun was a much smaller data set than the one that responded to the wire on some of the very, very same issues. What is instinct in your work, and what is a response to uh, the behavior of data sets that intrigue you in any sense?
2: Uh, I have to agree with Bo. The only place where I'm attendant to data um, is in deciding what story, why I want to tell a story sort of the point of origin of why you would want to spend your time doing a TV show about something and what you might want to say with it. It might be nice if it actually correlated to whatever the problems were you thought you were addressing. So, um, you know, why are people dying and why why is Baltimore a violent city might be a a predicate for making a television show about Baltimore, in this case, The Wire. So how violent is it? What's the nature of the violence? Who's getting killed? Why? That, That journalism part of it stays with me. That's my original training. Um, once you're in the realm of actually telling a story and being a storyteller, I have absolutely no interest in what the audience um, thinks. And, and, and it sounds very totalitarian. But wait, but wait a minute.
0: You, you care about Baltimore, right? I care about Baltimore. You care about justice and economic justice and – uh, I
2: wouldn't go that – I care about the story.
0: You care about uh, a response to the drug war being a complete fraud, which is what The Wire is all that's about. That's an argument,
2: but I mean, I, I care about the argument. I want to advance the argument. If
0: people who watch The Wire expressed their political view that the drug war was a fraud and voted legislation and candidates that reflected that, would that data interest you?
2: That's a, that's a that is a huge if that I abandoned a long time ago when I was a journalist. But if it happened, would it interest you? It would interest me. I would I would be dubious about. First of all, I don't think you can make the correlation. I, I would. I would be very dubious about any data that suggested that um, from my history in journalism. It sounds totalitarian to say I'm not writing for the audience, but uh, I've talked to a lot of writers, and you're writing, you're servicing the story. You're servicing the characters. You bring the world on. You feel responsible to the world. You feel responsible to the story, telling the best possible story. And if you look over your shoulder for a moment and start saying the audience wants more Omar, the audience wants more Stringer, Give them more, st- you know. That's why TV was a juvenile medium for most of its existence. It was very much attending to what keeps them here every quarter hour. We got to keep them here because they got to buy Lincoln Continentals and iPods and blue jeans and whatever else we're selling. Uh,
0: I think I'm asking so, a bigger question, and that is, uh, you went from covering crime for the Baltimore Sun, right. where the impact was imperceptible, to when you told Bill Moyers, "If you start telling these same stories with characters, boom, they pop out." What do you mean by that?
2: Well, actually. You know, I'm not sure that that's fair. Um, when I was working for the Baltimore Sun, the audience was actually targeted, so I was writing for a police commander that was that was cooking his stats, and the the audience might have been of one. So that actually, the impact was not at all imperceptible. It was actually quite direct. Whereas, you know, if somebody in Nebraska, uh, you know, who owns you know a house and 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 2.1 cars and 3.5 kids and a dog and a cat, if he decides that he doesn't like the drug war because of the wire, I'm not sure that that really, you know, I don't see the tipping point there. The the drug war is, you know, is is as fundamental to American life right now and the rates of incarceration, even though we're now seeing at the tail end of the second term of a Democratic presidency, we're seeing some suggestion that they're going to uh, uh, commute some sentences. But, the, but the, the levers of the drug war are, are, are as merciless as they ever were and as ruthless. And, the wire, you know, the wire had its run. We, we stomped our feet for, uh, you know, listen, I gave up on that. I, I believe in the story. And if you tell the story right, I've done my job. But I never got to the point of believing that, you know, they were going to come behind me and pass a better law. And I felt like the moment you started doing that as a journalist, you started, you were on a campaign, and, and the journalism started to get, a little bit horseshit. So i I I always backed away from that. And I'll back away from it now with television, too.
1: I mean, I think that what... Dave, tell me if I'm wrong, but what you're getting at is uh, the creative act fundamentally is a deeply selfish one. Yes. Um, And you might be interested. I mean, we all have our biases, our prejudices, our political views, our agendas as people. Um, But that's not... I don't think that's why you get up in the morning to bang your head against a wall all day long to try to figure out the irrationality of the human right. soul. Um, I, it's what, an act of... You're, you're on it.
2: You. Uh, so, so then we got two
0: <laughs> totally selfish writers here who we,
2: don't care let's about make the show together down <laughs> yeah. and who don't
0: care about no, 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 the political no, system not no, being corrupt. I want the big data people you, to take
1: you, over. You, see, you, see, uh, you know what? They'll fuck it up. <laughs> No offense. You, you see, uh,
3: <laughs> I'm not a big data person. I mean, we're, no, trying, I to mean, use, we're trying to use. No, I mean, uh, I know that like what you're art,
1: saying. art's like a it's like a type of communication, right? And I think at least when I was first starting out, you have this sort of sophomoreic idea that you're trying to reach people, um, and uh, and what you discover is you're actually tr- trying you're talking to yourself, right? And that you're trying the things you're trying to explore are things that you need to explore, and to the degree that. Other people find it entertaining, enlightening, provocative, what have you. That's a happy byproduct, and we all live in a commercial world where the ability to do what we want to do hinges upon you know, other people paying for it. But the moment you start writing for outcome, yeah. towards outcome, you become, it becomes a Clifford Odets.
2: play. It's yeah. just the, the characters represent.
1: It's didactic. Uh, we yeah, could use a Clifford Odets
0: in 2014, for heaven's sakes. We don't yeah, have none Clifford, of them You better them write now. better. All right. Well, that's true. You know, he, that he, is true. He, he Nate been, Silver, Dave Simon yeah. just said the big data people will fuck it up.
2: The narrative. Yeah, the I'm big a, da- a, data see, people I, will no screw it did, up. It. What does that
0: mean? <laughs> I'm <laughs> not a big
3: data person, <laughs> really. I mean, if you read my – the problem is we had this election thing in 2012, and people think that we can kind of wave our, our crystal ball and predict anything. And if you look at my broader body of work, like my, my book, um, you know, people screw all types of things up with data and without data – it's hard to make decisions. We live in a very complicated world. You know what we're trying to do now at 5:38 is just sometimes give you a little angle into something, a little s- snippet. Not trying to solve every problem. Um, people also say, well, as you know, gut instinct versus data or whatever else. Sometimes both work really well. Sometimes both are <laughs> are crap. You know, some problems are are more resistant to to a solution. Um, you know, now when I'm working on on a story 538, or working as an editor on a story. We are concerned about what the audience thinks. I think the commonality, though, is that we're very focused on on process. Um, you know, how we <coughs> do data journalism, what that means is a little open for interpretation. But it's kind of like saying, well, I run a, a Japanese restaurant, and the customer comes in and says, I really like a plate of, plate of spaghetti and meatballs. And no, I'm sorry, right? Um, we're a Japanese restaurant. That's not what we're going to do. So there's an ethical part of the process that you're following. Um, when you get bad feedback on a story, um, you think, was there something in my process that was wrong? Um, and you probably wait to get the same feedback several times, then maybe you make a, a bit of a course correction. Um, you don't try and patch things. I think that probably doesn't work very well at all, and as, as you were saying, the audience has an instinct for that. You know, the audience, this audience uh, today has a keen instinct for when they're being pandered to and and if you do it then it often backfires.
4: Authenticity is a is a good thing, but I, I must say that when you apply some of your approach to predicting the Oscars, it is not quite as effective. Um, well, we, we, don't, we didn't do that too. <laughs> I uh,
3: <laughs> we uh <coughs> you know, uh
4: because it's such a small group of people yeah. that it is all about figuring out how they think and how they behave, not what the statistics tell you is going to happen. The statistics did not tell you that 12 Years a Slave or Argo were gonna win Best Picture at all, and, and you had to figure that out. Right. Know who an Academy voter would, would be. Are you know?
1: As are either of you, there, you
4: in the not. Academy? <laughs>
1: median median age of the Academy is 68. 85% <laughs> of the Academy is men. Ninety-six percent of the academy is white. All but Williman knows nothing about data, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> that was, you know what? That was that was an LA Times story <laughs> no, that no, a journalist no, doggedly pursued for years. I think, but see, I think that uh, one of the most intriguing things about big data, and here I speak from a place of, of uh, you know, mostly ignorance, uh, but the, this idea that big data can reveal the irrational. Right. That What is most authentic is the irrational, really. It's like when you see bad CGI, you're not quite sure why it's off. It's because you know, it's too perfect. And, um, and what, you, what you get with some big data is uh, things that the rational mind would never have arrived at. So it's like we've been a causality civilization, and you move to correlation, and you don't necessarily know why two things correlate, and in a way it almost doesn't matter. The fact that they do is is the important thing and uh you know i I think that a lot of uh bad writing it it focuses too much on causality right it's this like freudian psychoanalytical bullshit what is the a that led to the b and more often than not uh we do things for reasons that we can never explain or that don't have a, a a Identifiable point, uh, identifiable point of origin. I mean, Chekhov does this. He'll have someone just right. walk into a room, make a strange sound like, and walk out. <laughs> has nothing to do with the story. There's no reason for it being there other than it, that's life. Sometimes someone walks into a room and makes a strange sound and walks out, you know, or a pigeon shits on your face. Random quotidian. You know, um, so, so, I, I mean, I'm sort of, but, I but, but unraveling here. Well, but. no, 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 but
4: there, there's
0: no, there's no data that's going to tell you we need more people coming into the room and making random noises, but there no, is but I'll use an it, interest I'll use in, in I love example. that scene where the person came in and made the random noise. That, that's of interest.
1: Yeah, but but that's a that's an instinctual thing that comes. I mean, in terms of the storyteller. But I'll use a Netflix example, and I'll just pick two. Uh, this isn't the actual example that, that Netflix gave me, uh, but I'll I'll just pretend it was. Uh, it's like this. Uh, uh, they they were just looking at the data, and they go, all right, well, there's all the people that like Sopranos, right? And for whatever reason, 10% of those people also love Two and a Half Men. Like two totally different types of shows. And no rational mind, no studio exec, no network exec would ever say that that's a Venn diagram that should overlap. But the data said it did. So they said, all right, let's push two and a half men in the suggested for you um, row to all the Sopranos people and see what happens. And what they found is actually it's closer to 20%. Some people clicked on it and like, oh, fuck, I never thought I'd like two and a half men, but I do, you know, and vice versa. So... What what is what is the reason for that? Maybe there is no reason, but there's a correlation that expands people's horizons, and that you never would have arrived at without big data or total data. Although, haven't people been
0: doing Venn diagrams for a long time? Every time they go, it's like two and a half men meets Big Bang Theory in the Middle East, right? That's that's a Venn diagram. The
4: Hollywood studios have been using numbers long hence and they and that's part of what's wrong with Hollywood is all, the degree to which they really are dependent on numbers and numbers that tell them that you have to have a pre-established pre-sold brand that you ha- that it's b- and they're also jumping into episodic storytelling if you think about what franchises are it's all about having a movie that will last more than once and will not just well, go out in one blast. And, and what
2: what do audiences want? What are the what are the two currencies that work with certitude in the entertainment industry? Violence? Yeah. And sex. Yeah. Porn and killing shit and blowing shit up. That's, and if you, if you lean hard at that, I mean, you can construct a show. Um, to, to go back to journalism, and, and, and something – I wasn't trying to be provocative when I say I don't care what the audience thinks. I was a journalist. I didn't care what the audience's presuppositions were about the issues I was covering when I started to cover them. Um, I, I wasn't trying to service the political attitude of the viewers – uh, or the readers of the Baltimore Sun, and I'm, I'm, you know, he, that becomes a terrible, you know, that's why we have MSNBC and, and Fox right now. So you can watch the news that gratifies what you think you already know about the world. And, and basically the entertainment culture is the same way. The, the, the entertainment culture is the same way, which is I like cop shows, I like when they do this, and if you find a show you like, the attitude of the viewer, and the reason that I, I tune out the audience is that what the viewer wants is the stuff you did in the first season that I really liked, do more of that shit. And I, I really like this guy, Omar. Give me more, Omar. The audience is like, a, is like a child. Come to the table, and you're saying, you know, here's your meal. We've got some potatoes. We've got some vegetables. and The kid's just going, I want, I want the ice cream. A, Give me the a, ice cream. But
0: there's another way of thinking about it, and, and big data is allowing ways of usefully thinking about it, and that is not doing what has worked, but and to quote a, a network person at Netflix, to seek the white spaces where there is no show, that could actually uh, uh, supply a set of desires right. that the audience doesn't know
2: it wants and yet. Might, and and that in, that in a sense, for, Netflix might, has, that has that might, done that. And that might work for the entertainment industry. And, and if you think Americans aren't yet entertained enough as a people, good—we can get—we can get, we can get <laughs> ourselves more entertained with what you do with that prescription. <laughs> hey, let me give you. Let me give you. Let me let me knock it down to where the only place that I care about data is. Let's go back. Why do people kill each other in America? Why do we kill each other? Why are we the most violent uh, developed nation in the world? Well, 165,000 people were killed in the last full decade from, from, from 2000 to 2010. 165 Americans were homicide victims. Anybody want to take a guess at how many were the victims of serial killers? Anybody? Yeah, that's almost zero percent. Uh, you know, it's under a 1,000. And that's including, you know, a percentage of unsolved that we might attribute based on the known solved. Okay? Serial killers are not our problem. Can, does anyone want to chart up the number? of exhaustive sort of neo-pornographic indulgences that, that, that occupy our, our, you know, our whole national essence when it comes to discussing violence. We don't want to really discuss why we're killing each other. It's about economics. It's about the haves, the haves nots It's about domestic violence. It's about a lot of things that we would rather not spend time well, on. Well, but King so Kong you,
0: isn't a social problem. And in the ancient Greece, uh, mothers poking right. out the eyes of their kids mm-hmm. wasn't a problem either, even though Medea did it.
2: Okay. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I can defend Medea on another level, but, but on, on the level, of, <laughs> uh, but on, but on America, I'm not sure about King Kong, but uh, on, on the notion of that we are entertaining ourselves to death, that we, we 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 have not met a problem, a substantive problem that we can solve as as a society, in the last couple of generations, that 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 the world is outrunning us, that the problems are outrunning us. If this is an argument worth having, look at you know look at look what is what is the entertainment culture contributing, if anything, I mean. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not supposed to be in TV, and nobody's having an argument like this at at HBO or at Netflix, and I'm not claiming any, any ground that, that actually exists, but I came out of journalism, and the only stories I'm interested in are what might actually happen in a given city, and that has no currency uh, with audiences. Audiences don't know what they want except what they, you know, they're still chasing the ghost of uh, of uh, Thomas Harris, and... and uh, and silence the lambs. That that occupies the American. You know, we, we want to get. We want it to be evil. We want it to be bigger than evil. Um, when in fact the problem might be sort of systemic and 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 us. And, and TV that's, is
4: still doing it a lot better than the movies are right now. Yeah, there's a well, lot
2: more. Yeah, but listen, you know, does does we, do, is meat that, on the bones? Is, is there, there anything in the data. step away, but you walk right back to the serial killer the next moment. Is
0: is there anything in the data that you see, Nate, that suggests preferences real? preferences on the part of uh, voters in the United States as far as issues are concerned versus candidate preferences, which are probably a lot easier to uh, predict?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, the way you frame an issue question can matter a lot more. Um, You know, most people have more heterodox political views than you would think. Um, You know, to me, there are all these issues out there that don't really have any correlation with one another, and the parties put them in a platform and say, well, you're supposed to believe, and if you're a... Democrat, and higher taxes, and, and gay marriage, but no guns, and all these things that <coughs> you should kind of be viewing independently, I suppose. Um, but, you know, I, I want to get back to the point about kind of telling telling stories, and I think one thing that David's getting at is that, you know, um, it's important for stories in journalism to be representative, right? Um, you know, a lot of one Why? thing... Because uh, I believe in a truth that goes beyond just, oh, has this packed passed a fact check, right? Um, if there are 20 uh, polls that are coming out in a race in a state, say Wisconsin, right, and 19 of the polls had President Obama ahead and the 20th has Paul Ryan ahead when he's running against him, I guess that would happen, Mitt Romney, I mean, rather, um, then if you write only about that 20th poll, that's basically a lie. Even though that poll was published, it might be a perfectly fine poll, but... You're not giving the reader a representative sense of a landscape, even though you probably have more traffic and and tension and drama that way. Um, So, you know, rich television shows where you really get under the skin of a problem, like David shows, are very valuable in that regard, right, where they're showing you the complexity of all the stakeholders in the system. And that's, I think, a very moral form of of storytelling.
0: If the distribution model has disrupted here, just to shift for a second and, and I Bo just want to ask
1: Nate a question. Sure, go ahead. Okay. Uh, it, when a lot of people a lot of people ask me uh, what happened, what happened with Dean? How why did he blow up? And, and uh you know, I worked as an advance man on that campaign, helped set up that event where the Dean scream happened, and I said there's a lot of whole Whole host of reasons why he blew up, but in the public consciousness, it, it's related to that screen because it's, that screen because it's a good story, right? That there was a narr- that, that campaigns live and die on good stories or bad stories, and there was a sort of prevailing narrative: is Is this guy presidential? Is or is he a loose cannon? And then the perfect moment happened that encapsulated the loose cannon. And if it hadn't been that, it would have been something else. Now, uh, so that so that sort of fossilized the narrative. But when you get into um, – I'm fascinated, like, you know, how you get in – there's journalism, which is sort of reporting statistics or interpreting them, and then there's the predictive nature. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> at the moment at which you start to predict – so let's say you've claimed that 60, there's a 60% chance that the Republicans will take back the Senate. Um, doesn't, there's a story that's happening. In real time of what will happen in twenty fourteen, and doesn't that begin to influence it's, the narrative? Well, so I, because respond. you you wield influence, and so then people get that statistic and they say, well, I guess they're going to take it back. And do you see what I'm saying? Like so the you know the media can always influence
3: the way that campaigns and and voters behave potentially, and we're a part of the media. I think we try and be. Responsible by showing our work and checking our assumptions, but yeah, it is—it is a little frightening when um, you get emails from you know, got email it, every party sends me emails now. They spam <laughs> me, right? So Emily's list is like prove Nate Silver wrong, right? And the RNC is sending <laughs> something out like you know, well Nate Silver shows why we're going to win, so that's a little frightening. I mean, it's one reason why I mean, 538's not really a politics site anymore. We cover politics and elections, but it's one of five or six things that we do. We're owned by a giant entertainment and sports. Companies, so you know, um, you know that, that thinks can, that your
0: data can be applied almost anywhere.
3: Well, look, I mean, storytelling. To, s- to say some of it's storytelling, some of it is just informing, some of it is data visualization. You know, it's a lot of different things. In um, you know, our view, is that you know we don't add value with everything, so we have to pick and choose where we think we have something interesting to say, um, and that means having a broader canvas of subjects um, is important. And sometimes we're not going to write about. A poll because we have nothing to say about it. Um, we're going to write about you know how you can get to the airport on time instead, or a health issue, or obviously a sports issue. So story selection is is important to what we do. Do you feel but like you I, work I'm for sorry. Disney? Do you well, feel like you work? Hold like a, on one second. A one second.
1: Self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. Sure. Sort of I mean, at. Uh, writing a
3: script. So in in two thousand in two thousand twelve, there was a poll that came out in Iowa one day, kind of randomly, that had Rick Santorum. Surging, it was probably just a bad poll. It was a small sample size, but all of a sudden all these journalists start writing about how he has the momentum, and then it becomes self-fulfilling. So especially in the primaries where you have multiple candidates, you have a lot of swing voters who are trying to be strategic, then then those things are are important. And you know, one thing that I critique about kind of some insider journalism is that um is that they kind of are just once another journalist says something, then it becomes like the zeitgeist <laughs> to them. You know, people are saying that the Dean campaign <laughs> is imploding. Well, well, who are those people? Right? It's probably mm-hmm. the person you talk well, to. Well, but there are a lot
0: of, of stories with Nate Silver in the first line. Have you ever held a story because you feel like reporting it will move the needle at a fragile, no, delicate I moment in a campaign? Maybe now
3: i sound like if you start to get into those head games, then then you know, then you're not really doing your work. Before long, I mean, we think about our process. Being ethical in the sense that you know, first of all, everything has to be has to be true. Um, you know, we want it to be transparent, so it shows the reader, not just tells them, but shows them where we're coming from and why we think the evidence is, is a certain way. Um, but we can't concern ourselves with the with the impact it has. That's very yeah. quick question. Do you feel like you work for the Disney Corporation? Uh, <laughs> I, you know, not exactly. I mean, some of my bosses are in, in the audience and, and college. Um, it's a, so, you know, Disney and ESPN are places that um, invest in products and believe in, in the creative process, and so some of that, some of that shows up, right? Um, you know, my bosses are very good about not micromanaging things, and they're saying that we've gone from having basically a two-person team at the time to all of a sudden 20-some people. They're very young, um, and so, you know, it takes time. You have to iterate and, and get things right, and they, and they understand it They give you resources. They're there as a resource,
2: but... Um, they're not trying to, to dictate every... Apparently, every the further come. you get away from L.A., the nicer Disney sounds. <laughs> 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 just saying. Uh, can I... You just fucked yourself with Disney, I, man. Can yeah. I ask? <laughs>
1: like the all studios are lining up for my
0: Just trying to create trouble, that's all. Um, just to shift the subject for a second, you can come back to any of these issues if, if it occurs to you. Has the fact that uh, there's a demonstrable metric, to use that dreadful word, of people... Uh, consuming shows in entire series is that creatively liberating in any sense you've said that it doesn't affect how you write individual episodes of a House of Cards but I think of The Wire as a whole series phenomenon as, as a more like a classical trilogy of Aeschylus than a set of little episodes, is that creatively
1: liberating for either of the two of you? Do go? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Right. We agree that I would go first. <laughs> um, <laughs> Conspiracy. No, I. Uh, uh, I think look, whatever he did. the way I watched The Wire was I binged it. I mean, I, I wasn't there the first two seasons, and by the time the third came out, and all of my friends were telling me it's the most amazing show of all time, I either on demand or through box sets or whatever, I watched three seasons over the course of about a week and a half, um, and agreed with them, you know. And, and I think, as you pointed out at the beginning, this trend of. Uh, uh, of binge watching, specifically TV shows, uh, it goes back you know 15, 20 years. As soon as box sets started coming out, on demand, DVRs, all that, all that was available. So, uh, in terms of writing the show, for least, and I can only speak to House of Cards, uh, it, it has to work both ways. I mean, when we teamed up with Netflix, there was we we knew that releasing all in one day was a possibility, but not an inevitability. We might go week to week. And, uh, and but even you did get a two-season
0: deal, right? We did
1: get a two-season yeah. deal. Would that really affected the writing? Knowing that you had twenty-six hours and you could lay just a tiny little grace note in the first episode that might not boomerang back until twenty-six hours later, mm-hmm. um, that really liberates you uh, and taking the pressure off fighting for your life. You know the way that my friends who work at network television you know must when literally you're only as good as your last week's ratings. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you feel the compulsion to have big cliffhangers or to force and contrive the drama uh, to jack those ratings. I, I didn't have to deal with any of that. they
2: are measuring stuff in the quarter of the hour. Yeah, yeah, how many, exactly. How many, do they stay with you for the third quarter? Do they stay with you for the fourth quarter? I mean, you got to bring them back after every commercial
1: break. But the biggest thing also is that we just had no idea what the hell we were doing. I mean, Fincher hadn't worked in TV. I hadn't. Uh, Kevin and Robin really hadn't. Um, Netflix hadn't. Uh, so, so we, we, uh, you know, we had the bliss of ignorance. You know, um, but Netflix
4: we, gave you that opportunity based on their algorithms, on on the fact that they believed that all of those elements were so commercial that they couldn't go wrong.
0: The Venn diagram of David I'm Fincher, sure, House of look, Cards, that, Britain, yes, they, and Kevin Spacey. They,
1: they said that that is that was part of it. But there also was, uh, you know, there was a script to read. And, uh, and these are real people, you know, Fincher and Kevin and Spacey, myself, and Fincher's partners. Um, you know, th- there was, we still had to get together and meet in a room and have a conversation, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so, yes, I'm sure that went into it. As I'm sure, to some degree, it goes into any networks uh, or studios' d- determination of whether to go with something. They
4: don't let you just do a whole season at once. What's that? They, they do, do pilots. pilots. right? Not anymore. That You change yeah. that.
1: Well, I mean, we said to HBO, Showtime, and AMC we want a full season guaranteed, which is an act of hubris, but we also didn't want to audition, and because, you know, we could go do movies or what have you, and we hadn't built a career in television, we would rather walk away from the project than, than put a, uh, all of ourselves into this one hour only to have it not get made, mm. um, so... Uh, So what Netflix said is we said the same thing to them, and they said, uh, oh, yeah, we're in the content business. We want at least uh, probably at least two seasons up front. (laughs) (laughs) We we tried to, like, play it cool. We're like, okay. (laughs) Uh, And then we're like, "Uh, so creative control. They're like, we don't have a single uh, creative development executive. Uh, We just want you to make the show you want to make. We'll give you the resources to do it and put out the world. We're like, all right. Yeah. We'll, innovation. We'll, we'll think about that. Um, there's, uh, yeah. there's a great
2: book on It uh, <laughs> can't possibly go wrong with all these elements in the entertainment industry called The Devil's Candy. It's about 10 years old. Yeah. Yeah. It's oh, about that's the making of Bonfire one. of the Vanities, yeah. Yeah. which that's was awesome. a movie that, you know... It's Julie how possi- book. Yeah, yeah, How could it possibly go wrong? <laughs>
4: we've
2: got these actors, we've got this director, we got this ma- source material, and here's the budget. can't possibly go wrong. Quick question before we
0: go to questions from the audience. David, uh, do you... Is, is there anything reassuring about that? Instead of measuring these quarter-hour kind of hamster data, they're yeah. measuring yeah, bigger season. sets the, the, uh, over
2: the course of an entire season. Bigger sets mean you get to get your world up, and you make, get to make a, a cogent argument uh, for the story you're telling. Um, but I have, n- if the argument has to be answered with, can you sustain an audience on a Sunday night? Uh, I have failed uh, consistently throughout. The last 110 hours of television for HBO, and proud of it apparently. Not proud of just <laughs> this is you know I can't get you to watch a show when I put it on the air. If if it exists in some streaming form or in a box set, and word of mouth has some time, uh, people may or may not find their way back. But actually, I don't think what I'm doing quite works for for what television still on some le- level remains, and and I think Netflix is breaking the mold. I think. You know, in some ways, HBO was a new window, and when they were just throwing stuff up—stuff, you know, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, when they were throwing stuff up against the wall in their in the first generation of original programming, The Wire could survive for five years. The, I'm not sure The Wire could survive. Hmm. That's you interesting. Know, the stakes are higher for HBO now, and they'll be the first to tell you we only have 104 hours to program for drama on Sunday night. We have 52 weeks, nine at 10 o'clock. If David Simon is sucking wind on a show that critics say, oh, you know, it's it's worth watching because of X, Y, and Z, but nobody's watching it, um, I'm dragging, you know, mm-hmm. I'm dragging, I'm dragging but the, the flag.
4: the needle is moving. They are adding a lot more programming to Netflix. The HBO deal with Amazon yesterday right. is a very I think we're heading deal. towards him. I think yeah, we're heading, I exactly. think we're heading
2: yeah. towards, towards uh, Netflix. And, and the everybody's idea of imitating them. And, then. and, and there is there's
1: also there's different ways to gauge success because uh, – you know, when it was just three networks and then became four and it was selling advertising time, it really was directly proportional to the amount of people watching because that's re- re- advertising revenues were based on that. Um, but when you have subscriber-based networks or companies, uh, sometimes you are trying to, I mean, I'm speculating on behalf of these companies here, uh, please or, or or speak to a certain niche within your audience that might feel underserved, and right? Or... There's a show that, uh, because it's critically acclaimed or because it gets a ton of buzz in the press, that its numbers may pale in comparison to other shows on that same network, but it's in the news a lot more, uh, has a certain value. And how you judge the value and so you base a budget, how much are we willing to pay in order to get that much news, even though the viewership, blah, 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 is something that people in suits in L.A. talk about. Um, But but it does mean that there's different ways to gauge the success of a show, at least from a corporate perspective. And
0: Netflix is driving this, and I'd love your comments before we go to the audience here on the data that allows you to develop these sub-genres of people that are absolutely measurable that could be the basis, the seed for a show because that niche is either very, very passionate. Here, here are some examples. I mean, the, you can run data on sub-genres of movies way beyond classic action movies or family-friendly westerns which exist in standard sort of commercial genres. But you can actually do numbers on assassination, bounty hunter, secret society dramas based on books set in Europe about fame for ages 8 to 10. Or you can actually develop numbers on post-apocalyptic comedies about friendship or deep-sea father and son period pieces based on real-life set in the Middle East for kids. And those are all based on algorithms, region, plus adjective, plus noun, plus based on, plus set in, plus from the, plus about plus four ages X to Y. All that is courtesy of The Atlantic. It's like the
1: periodic tables. It's like designating elements that already exist, maybe. Uh, but it's not like you say, all right, let's go make, you know, a short-form documentary about the Middle East that will make kids 8 to 10 happy, right? It's like still the artists, like, say, they sit at a table, and they write a script, and they put it in someone's hands, and maybe they... You know, you have executives who say what category does this you know, fall into or whatever. More often than not, um, you know, people don't know what they want. And that means executives as much as anyone until you give it to them. And someone has to give it to them, you know. And so I think that those are more sort of ways to organize things that already exist than they are strategies uh, yeah, people. To,
3: people uh, – this is a mistake uh, – yeah. stat people make as well as kind of uh, qualitative people. But – you know, statistics are often just history, right? They're saying, "Here's a really statistically rich description of what something made something happen in the past." It doesn't always predict the future, especially when you don't understand the causality. You know, right. um, if you're betting on a correlation and you don't know why it occurred, then I'll take the other side of that bet um, because you have so much data, you're going to have a lot of noise, um, and our brains are wired to to make patterns out of noise. And the other thing too is that you know we're because it's so easy now to get content in so many different ways at any time of day, if you make something which is derivative and second best, then then no one has a reason But in the go. pocket. It's and in
2: the de- totally true. It's in the pocket, but it's derivative. Does big data, do,
0: do these data categories empower fans of Arrested Development or Veronica Mars and get something made that never would have been made otherwise? Is that virtuous in well, any Netflix sense?
4: Netflix has all of those, those the, that data that they can make those decisions with, and now everybody else is using them, but the, the studios are using them for marketing, too, and all the Google uh, analytics that people can pick up in terms of what works and what doesn't. It doesn't apply to... To me, but it definitely applies to what kinds of movies are getting made now.
2: And yet, the, I'm going to use a, a baseball metaphor in honor of Nate Silver here, which is to say, you get the you know the, the pitchers who do the best, the pitchers who confound batters the most, the ones who get up and throw. And the without pine you, tar, the moment you start, <laughs> 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 or with pine <laughs> but the moment you start aiming the ball, um, you can't find the plate. And you know when you're in your groove, you're just throwing. And and and. Uh, you can call that instinct. You can call it whatever. But you know, all those shows that broke ground on HBO in that first generation—it was, pe- you know, there wasn't, nobody was looking at any data. They were just saying these were guys who worked in TV like Chase, who had, who, had, who had followed the rules of TV to the nth degree, who learned all of its tricks, and now they were ready to write something outside of, of, you know, color outside the lines. And I don't know what it was like on his show, but the only way that an HBO network executive would have landed on the set of The Wire. In its entire five-year run, and 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 tried to um, look over our shoulder what we were doing, is if their plane on the way to Paris crashed <laughs> in Baltimore. And that's the only way. They were not
1: coming to Baltimore for nothing. But there and is the, the basic know. thing is there's no data for the new, right? Because it's new, there's no statistics for it. There's nothing you can't you can't measure it because that's it one didn't with something didn't exist something never. now exists you know right because I mean, like, that's why like Bill goldman's star. famous you know no when it, at least when it comes to hollywood nobody knows anything <laughs> and and when it It's the, the dark is,
2: matter of entertainment right and, when, and the truth is when when they think when they're armed with that stuff they produce as you said derivative second like in the pocket like there is a formula now for the He's an antihero. He's on the outsides of society. He's doing wrong, but he has a family. But, you know, maybe he talks to a shrink. Maybe he doesn't talk to a shrink. But is, he's he's torn up about it. He's got this issue. You know, it's like, shit, they just keep watching The Sopranos over and over. It's like they think, catch that fire in that bottle. And, you know, nobody about What about Sopranos about, with vampires? What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sopranos <laughs> with and, and, he's <laughs> yeah. and he's a vampire. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and he's a vampire. And he's got, you know, and, and, like, there's just these, you know, and it, it, it becomes, uh it's like cloning; it becomes weaker with every generation. And and I look at some of this stuff, and I think, you know, just let the right. You know, I'm not going as far as artist. You know, when you said artist <laughs> sitting down with a script, dude, we work in TV. It's like, I started out as a painter. Let man. the hack sit down and and, and, and and have an idea and write something. Yeah. And but but it, you know, tell a story that you think ought to be told for whatever your reasons are, and. You know, maybe it won't be different from the last hundred stories, or maybe it will be. But that's, you know, it's like the data. The idea that this data is becoming its own authority on the on the, you know, this is what we should make end scares the hell out of me. The idea that this data makes journalism or or, um, or 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 qualitative assessment of the day's events more valuable is great. I mean, you know, I mean, I was in the newsroom when the comput- when we started doing computer generated journalism, and it was like wait a sec, you mean we can we can dive into this stuff and actually figure out what it means or what it might mean? That was epic. It was so much better than you know uh, what came before. But no, and that's
0: the great takeaway from, from this collision that's going on. We've been very selfish up here. One question from the audience, and then we have to wrap it up right there.
4: Hi, my name is Batia. Um, I write television. I'm trying to zig while everyone else is zagging, and my question is um, what advice can you give me to... Help people who are in the way in their data thinking to go where I'd like them to go. I mean, I'm trying to leave them with a great feeling, um, and have them work with their gut, because I have a story that I'm dying to tell, um, but I don't want to just sit, and I and I need those partners. So help me out, thanks.
1: Uh, this will sound like an assholeish thing to say, but it, <laughs> it just has to be really good. and <laughs> serious. I mean, that's what people respond to. Uh, you know, look there There are people that uh, in the industry who've gotten directives from up higher or whatever uh, okay, we're not going to do any period stuff this year right right or uh, uh, you know, hey, we really want to do like something war based whatever they have their they, people need to have some sort of roadmap when they show up to work at the office, but then they'll read some period thing that blows their minds. And they go, I feel so great about this. I've never read anything like it before. I'm going to take it to my boss, even though the directive was, we're not doing any period stuff this year. Which goes back to nobody knows what they want. I mean, and this will sound cliched, but uh, if you are deeply passionate about it, and you're the only person that can tell that story, then it will show up on the page. And that's really, if there's anything people want, it's that, because that's... Mm. Originality and
0: authentic. One more question. I'm told we have time we had for a little porn and a little violence in the back of yeah, yeah, the middle. Yeah, Put a little <laughs> porn <laughs> in there. Yeah. Wait for the mic to get
1: to you. We we got a little time for that. Okay, go ahead. So, this this session was called Story by the you know stories by the numbers and, and big data. And what we've been talking about is a lot of long form series narrative. Not once sh- was user generated content or YouTube mentioned. So I'm curious, what do you you think the role or the influence of that content is on entertainment and also what you're doing?
4: There was a great example of something called First Kiss, which uh, was a big viral hit. In three days it it was like 75 million. It was this woman who was sort of down and out and desperate and worked with some fashion people, and this thing took off, and it's going to be developed into a bigger project. So that whole viral aspect of what can break and then show the powers that be that there's a, a following and there's an audience is a huge deal. Kickstarter is a huge deal in terms of being able to fund things that other people in the establishment won't fund and uh, Indiegogo, and so forth. And there's all sorts of positive aspects of this that are, not, uh, that are now making things possible that were not possible before.
0: 75 million people download a video, and somebody comes to you, David, and says, you want to develop this as a series? Would you go
2: get me out of here, or would you be interested? I'd go get me out of here, but I'm not supposed to be in the... I mean, I, <laughs> I, I came from a weird place. I came from a newsroom. Um, I, I think the democratization of storytelling with... You know, with what's happened with the Internet is, is – and the, the democratization of opinion, um, that the, everyone gets their say, and, and some people, if they say it cleverly, are going to get – some things are going to go viral as they should. It, it, there's a wonderful meritocracy to it, and certainly a, a democratization. It's just great. It's astounding. It's the story of our time. Um, I do worry on the other end about um, revenue streams. And and I worry about it in this sense, which is I, I made one of the cheapest shows at the time to make on HBO, uh, The Wire. It was the budget was very small compared to their other productions, but even I had to, to I had to sell. You know, there had to be subscriptions, there had to be a revenue stream in order to give me twenty four million dollars to make another season of The Wire. You know, that's cheap by TV standards. It's not cheap by human standards of money, and yet. Um, copyright in music, in film, in, in, in all forms of narrative, in all forms of communication, copyright is under siege because everyth- when everything's free, you know, then everything's free. And it's great, on the, it's great on the creativity end, but I really, you know, having come from a world of copyright, you know, writing books and, and, and working in newspapers, and this is scary this is, you know, you're seeing what hap- is happening to high-end journalism. You're seeing what's happening, you know, and, and HBO is vulnerable in the same way. There's stuff that I can't get made um, because right now um, the revenue stream is, is, I mean, you just saw what HBO just so you did were chased it. from a newspaper newsroom and thought you were safe in television
0: and realized, uh-oh, uh, I, the, the monsters the way, are at my door happened, again.
2: After I saw what happened in newsrooms, and I left before the Internet, actually, yeah, but I, I was chased by Wall Street. But um, after I saw what happened in newsrooms, I thought, you know, I'm never going to be that naive person who just figures because there's a big building here on Calvert Street, I know where to go to work every day. I'm never going to be that. And, and I feel the same way about TV, which is this thing's changing so fast. You know, HBO said, well, we're never giving our content. You know, they, they just yesterday said to right. Amazon, Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, uh, the cord cutting is is, is very real. Yep. And what follows it has to be some revenue because um, – you know, listen. I'm not saying this is somebody who owns the shows. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm on salary. You know, but the act, everybody's got to get paid. The, the 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 grip, the grips, the, the you got to pay for the film. You got, it costs money to do it at a certain level, and if the revenue isn't there, uh, either you know, either on subscription or on advertising. I mean, thank God we got rid of the ads. You could actually, you know. I mean, when advertising dictated it, you couldn't tell a grown-up story.
4: No, there's an emerging micro-budget marketplace where anybody, you know, the barrier to entry is very low, but there isn't a revenue potential going forward for right. a lot of people. I got a story.
2: I got a story that I'd love to do. which is on. The, um, I've been working on it for eight, nine years now with Ed Burns, uh, uh, the history of uh, the CIA, which would basically be uh, America's global sort of foreign policy footprint. But that's a 60 year period piece, 70 year period piece. Is that Weiner's the, book? Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean based his book, yeah, in, about 16. Yeah. But yeah, and it's it's 70 years of of period piece filming and it's, you know, it's it's not it's no sounds, it's all over the world. It's a lot of CGI, you know. Uh, you know, scene 1, act 1 is, you know, Berlin after the war. You know, total wreckage. And you look at that and HBO goes, you know, listen, it was all fun when we were giving him twenty million, and he was making the wire, and nobody was watching. You know, but do you take us for fools, you know. I mean, there's just you know they're looking at what the plausible revenue stream is with, with all the downloads and the, and the BitTorrent, and you know.
4: Would you put movie stars in it?
2: I and vampires. <laughs> but um, is there any difference these you know, days? No, listen. I mean, but then, but then, you know, all you are is Liam <laughs> Neeson. He's there, right? That, what that tells you is the window of this sort of so-called golden age of television. The window might might have a point at which it snaps shut in your fingers because now we're discussing the same thing as... as I know you as are. How, This is a Hollywood but, but studio. But they're, they're available. Yeah, can we get James Franco? They're available. If we can get James Franco, you can make it. Yeah, because
4: they're no longer working in the movies.
2: All right.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, we have to wrap it up here, unfortunately. I have to ask one last question of Nate Silver because I want to get him on the record on this since we've talked so much about journalism and its <laughs> problems and insecurities. Do you believe
3: you're secure in your job in journalism? Nate? Uh, you know, I signed a contract that has certain guarantees. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Nate Silver, Bo Willemun, David Simon, and Ann Thompson. Thanks so much, guys.